Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our roundup of the week's political news. The very first presidential debate happened this week. We'll also talk about what's happened since then. Plus, Congress voted to override a veto from the president for the first time of Obama's presidency. As always, we'll end the show with Can't Let It Go when we all share one thing we cannot stop thinking about this week. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. It's so good to have you today, Mara. It's so good to be here, Sam. You bring the heat all the time. <laughs> Y'all, it's finally fall. It's hot in here, though. It's hot in the studio, but like, it's finally like the nicest weather where I can like run outside and it feels good. It's like that magical time in D.C. where there's like a week or two in the fall and a week or two in the spring yeah. where it's nice out and then the weather's bad it's all like the bad. rest of the time. Yeah. It's either like, too hot or too cold. But it's some. It, what it, if you've covered a lot of campaigns, there is a moment when you go out to cover something and it's cold. The smell in the yeah. air. Yeah, and it's just there's something about it. You're out, you're in the Midwest or you're going to a debate and it's all of a sudden it's not summer anymore. It's mm-hmm. like that burning leaves smell And it means the end is in sight. <laughs> you got, sure you got fall colors on today, Mara. Yes, I do. That is a great color. They can't see it. It's a wonderful rusty orange. Thanks, but I will never ever drink a pumpkin spice latte. Agreed. Oh. Okay, there are two episodes behind this one in your podcast feed. One recaps the debate from this week. Another one answers your questions about that same debate. So that means today's episode will be a little bit shorter and not so debate focused, but we'll still answer a few questions. Okay, now to start, since the debate on Monday, Donald Trump has hinted that he plans to hit Hillary Clinton harder, possibly on Bill Clinton's, quote, transgressions from the 90s. After he said that, old names began to pop up like Jennifer Flowers. So let's give a little primer on Bill Clinton and the 90s and women. And Mara, I think you can do that for us. Thanks a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Mara? Should we phrase that? (laughs) Yes, I covered Bill Clinton in the 90s. But anyway, Jennifer Flowers was the lounge singer who Bill Clinton had an affair with before totally he ran she for was a president. Lounge singer. She was a lounge singer before he ran for president. There were other women, the most famous Monica Lewinsky, the intern at the White House, that led to Bill Clinton's impeachment by the Senate. He was never convicted. And the reason we're talking about this is because Donald Trump and his supporters and surrogates have said that he might bring these transgressions up in the next debate. But he's kind of brought them up already. I feel like there was this weird thing where Trump made a vague innuendo comment about it at the end of the debate saying, I I could have said something very hurtful about your family or something along those lines. I was going to say something extremely rough to Hillary, to her family, and I said to myself... I can't do it. I just can't do it. But I didn't. But I didn't. And then immediately afterward, in the spin room, he was talking about it. Yes. And then his surrogates were talking about yes. it. But now he's still trying to claim credit, saying, well, I think it was really big of me to not bring that up. Yes, and but his son actually said, and several of his surrogates yeah. have said, that shows that he's really restrained and presidential because he didn't bring it up even though he said he was thinking about it. But this is something that Democratic operatives feel it's a real trap for him to go there. But he's not going to go there by saying your husband cheated on you and you stayed with him. He's going to say you attacked these women. You not only enabled his abuse of women, but you attacked these women. And that would be the attack he takes if he chooses to go that route. My question is, you know, how much of what is said about Hillary's interactions with these women is true or not? Like, did she smear these women? Who? How? How involved in Bill's mess was she? There's no doubt that she defended him against certain allegations in Arkansas. 
She was a full political partner with him. Monica Lewinsky was a little bit different. There was a letter or a journal entry by a friend of hers who's now deceased that recounts a conversation she had with her. The woman's name is Diane Blair, where she talked about Monica Lewinsky as being neurotic. But that isn't something she said in public. I think the reason why this could be dangerous for Hillary Clinton is because there is a whole generation of women who she has been struggling to get to her side. Millennial women. Millennial women who don't know about this. And then they're all going to go and Google, gee, who's Monica Lewinsky? And attitudes have changed since the 90s about sexual harassment in the workplace. And they might not be as quick as people were back then to rally to Hillary Clinton's side. But it's also an incredibly risky strategy if Republicans choose to go down this path. Because think about this. There's a reason why people don't attack Hillary Clinton on this. Donald Trump is not the first person to campaign against Hillary Clinton. Part of that, too, is... You know, the Republican Party writ large and Donald Trump specifically have problems with women voters and to go down a path where you could easily be perceived as attacking a woman for the transgressions of her husband could very much backfire on you and be seen also as victim blaming or something that could very much alienate women who do not agree that wives should be blamed for the failings but that's of their husbands. What what, the... Based on what his surrogates are saying, that's not the tack he was going to take. He's going to accuse her of being a phony feminist for attacking these women. But, but that presumes Donald Trump can stay on message. Yes. Right. For yeah. his surrogates, Donald because Trump now is. we have we have headlines this week of Rudy Giuliani, a person who has had his own marital problems blared in the headlines, saying basically that Hillary Clinton was too stupid to realize that her husband was, was having an affair. So that doesn't really sound like an on-message attack to me. And I think we should also point out that in the period where Bill Clinton was impeached for this and for things that he said— for lying under oath. Yeah, Yeah. for lying under oath about this, uh, what, Republicans lost seats in the midterm elections. And what was his approval rating in the end? Like 65% or more? Also, Donald Trump, his record with women— Is not that good. Speaking of, another part of the 90s that resurfaced this week were things that he said about former Miss Universe winner Alicia Machado. Hillary Clinton brought this up during the debate. She talked about Trump insulting Machado's race and her weight in the 90s. And the story is not going away because Trump has responded basically saying, well, yeah, she did have a bad attitude. She was the worst. She was overweight. It's not pretty. And this was another example of Donald Trump taking something that could not be worse for him in terms of his vulnerabilities with voters and in terms of the message that Hillary Clinton is trying to get to stick about him, in that the morning after the debate, he calls into Fox and Friends, as he often does, and he brought this up without even being prompted. They didn't ask him about this. He brought it up. And then when the host tried to steer him in another direction, he kept talking about it. Did not know that story. Well. I didn't know either. What, what she was the, she she was the winner, and uh, you know she gained a massive amount of weight, and uh, it was it was a real problem. We had a we had a real problem. Not only that, her attitude, and we had a real problem. With and it, then so. this is something the Clinton campaign was prepared for because they had a two minute video about her that they dropped about an hour after the debate, and then they organized a conference call so she could continue talking to reporters about this. And you know this is a twofer for the Clinton campaign. It's not just a woman that he fat shamed. She's a Latina, and he didn't just call her Miss Piggy, he called her Miss Housekeeping. And that's that's the thing that Democratic operatives tell me could be the most motivating for Hispanic voters, particularly Hispanic females. My thing with Machado, though, it's like, 
when she was mentioned in the debate, she was this character that you could feel bad for. Uh, since then, she's said some things, and some of her record has uh, been released where uh, you realize she has some layers. There's some tape of her talking to Anderson Cooper about some allegations. She was accused of driving a getaway car after a murder in 1998. The judge in the case also said you'd threatened to kill him after he indicted your boyfriend for the attempted murder. I just want to give you a chance to address these reports that the Trump surrogates are talking about. He can say whatever he wants to say. I don't care. You know, I have my past. Of course, everybody has. Everybody has a past. And I'm not... Uh, a saint girl. So she's saying there, I'm no saint girl. When you hear, <coughs> I am told, when you hear her talking on Spanish media, she is powerful surrogate. Yeah, and she's popular in she's Latin She's popular. America. She's been in a lot of telenovelas. And this video that the Clinton campaign had, so far it's just something on Twitter. I don't think they're going to buy, as of right now, this is not something they're going to be putting on TV. But they have clips of Donald Trump in the news in the 90s. He basically held a press conference where he made her work out in front of reporters to try yeah. to lose it was weight. Just, oh, yeah. And it's part of a bigger narrative against Donald Trump that he does not respect women. And I saw the ad on television this morning about the ad that the Clinton campaign's running of young girls looking in the mirror as they play Donald Trump's mm-hmm. words over top of it. And this is a message that Democrats think is an ace in the hole for them. And a message that Michelle Obama, one of Hillary Clinton's most powerful surrogates, has been pushing this week as she's on the campaign. Speaking of surrogates and good surrogates and bad surrogates, we'll talk more about Michelle Obama and Bernie Sanders hitting the trail for Clinton. We'll also talk about Gary Johnson. One quick break. We'll be right back. Also, before our break, let me just say the three main topics we've talked about so far, uh, affairs from the 90s, fat shaming and Miss Universe. 2016. 2016. It's 2016. so great that we talk about the issues in this campaign. <laughs> we'll be right back. This campaign is like a telenovela. So. <laughs> We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve health care? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower healthcare costs. Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork. What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. All right, we're back. So there have been a lot of stories lately about how Hillary Clinton is having kind of a hard time with young voters this election. To help fix that, she is bringing out the big guns, Bernie Sanders and Michelle Obama, both people who are loved by young people. Bernie Sanders actually joined Hillary and Michelle campaigned on her own for Hillary this week at separate events. And we've talked already about the unhelpful kind of surrogates. These are helpful, right? Big league. As Donald Trump would say. These Did he say sur- big league or big league? He says big league. Oh. Big league. Okay. Now he, you know. Um, yes. These surrogates are very powerful. Donald Trump is more or less a one-man band. Yes, he has Rudy Giuliani and occasionally Chris Christie. But Hillary Clinton has Barack Obama, who has been out there 
in a, a more energetic way than any other sitting president in history has campaigned for his successor. Bernie Sanders, who she hopes is an emissary to millennials and young people, which has been her most stubbornly resistant demographic in the Obama coalition, the mm-hmm. coalition that she has to get back together again to win. And she was with him in New Hampshire talking, making a positive case for her candidacy, not talking about Donald Trump, talking about college debt. And Michelle Obama, who is extremely popular, was campaigning in Philadelphia. And she went after Donald Trump for birtherism, saying how it tried to delegitimize her husband and really saying to people, if you care about the Obama legacy, you will turn out and explicitly making the argument that staying home is a vote for Trump Voting for a third or fourth party is a vote for Trump. Does this work, Sue? Well, I also think the Clinton campaign uses their surrogates wisely. If if Bernie Sanders was in New Hampshire, a state that he won handily in the primary and where he remains very popular, and Michelle Obama being in the Philadelphia area talking to African-American voters, Uh I think especially for Michelle Obama, and what I think the Obamas are trying to do is part of their own mission to keep this coalition together is the fact that Clinton has campaigned essentially increasingly as the Obama legacy and that the way that they speak to the black community and trying to get the black turnout is going to be a critical part for Hillary Clinton this fall. There is not a question that black voters are going to vote for Donald Trump. They're not going to vote for Donald Trump. We know that. Every reasonable data metric we can look at, we know he's not going to win the black vote. The question is, are they going to show up in the same measure as they did in 2008 and 2012? And Hillary Clinton is not motivating them. The question is, does Michelle Obama? Probably yes. Yeah. It's pretty hard. People vote for the candidate, generally not a surrogate. But but I also want to make the point, this is really worth remembering, that Hillary is running against historic patterns because it is really hard to get a third term. Mm -hmm. It's almost impossible. Only George H.W. Bush has been able to pull it off in the modern era. It's really, really hard. After eight years, voters generally want to change. That's why Donald Trump's message has been so powerful because he's the change candidate. Also got to remember that 08 coalition was the kind of thing that comes about once in 100 years Right. It was a 100-year flood. I mean, like... The turnout in these communities, the coalition of these diverse communities, like in many ways, Obama and his election is unique. You know, that said, I have been talking to lots of young people and lots of black voters over the last week or so. I was in Atlanta last week talking to black voters. I was at a class at the University of the District of Columbia just yesterday talking to a political science course. And one young student, 25 year old black mother of two, She kind of got into an argument with her professor, Jerome Hunt, who teaches there, basically over the accusations that young voters are apathetic. And she said this. You got to understand that the millennials, like nobody's teaching us no more. Nobody's teaching the children. Nobody's teaching the youngins. Nobody is teaching us. So you got everybody who's 25. Mind you, I've only been a voting age since Obama been in term. Like, you hear what I'm telling you? So a lot of us, 18, fresh out the gate, this will be the first time we're able to vote. Nobody is telling us. Yo, this is what Congress looks like. This is how it's built up. This is how it's set up. I think that's the biggest thing. Like, if if we can get more of our people who've been voting since Clinton, have been voting since the first Bush, if we can get more of our grown folks teaching us millennials about this, then we might be able to flip that Congress around, get it back democratic, and then people who look like me will be able to have more of a voice. And that's really what matters. So this was Brittany Jackson. She brought the fire the whole class. But, I mean, does that critique... 
hold water. Oh, this yeah. is, I want to get on my soapbox. Do yes, it, Mara. There's no civics education in America anymore. Nobody has any idea what the Constitution is, what the Bill of Rights are, what how our government works. This is a tragedy, and it is one of the main reasons I totally 100% agree with her. That's why people think that it doesn't matter, the system stinks. And also she said this as well. She said in 08... Every black person she knew over 40 or 50 was telling her and her cousins and her sisters and brothers and everybody to vote. Like, there was a historic urgency. And she says she's not hearing the same urgency from her older black counterparts this time. That's what Obama's trying to counter. I have a different – there was something she said that I also thought was very interesting because I think the two parties right now – both have larger structural problems, but in sort of opposite ways, where she was talking about, like, Democrats voting for Congress and thinking down the ballot. And the Democratic Party is in a much better position when it comes to national elections because they're broader, they're more diverse. But they have been largely eviscerated in midterm elections under President Obama because Democrats don't vote in midterm elections Mm -hmm. in the same intensity or regularity as Republicans do. Mm -hmm. And then the Republican Party has the opposite problem is that they have really faltered and failed in national elections, but their voters show up and are energized in midterms. And we have created a system that is geared towards Democrats on a national level and Republicans on a state level, which has fueled this split government. And that's why I'm really interested to see whether this Barack Obama campaigning works, because you talk about the midterm problem. In 2010, I was a reporter in Pennsylvania. I saw Barack Obama come to Philadelphia beg Democrats to show up and vote. This is a state where there are a million more Democrats than Republicans and Republicans swept every single statewide race that year because they didn't listen to him. Yeah. You know, we've been talking a lot about early voting this week. It it kicks off today in Iowa and uh, both parties making a big effort to kind of get people there. Do you think the fact that there is so much more extended early voting in so many states could help address that problem of people not showing up? Yes, and Democrats have made it a huge priority. And anecdotally, what we see from some of these states that have early voting is Democrats seem to be meeting their targets. Um, but they always have a harder time. Their their voters are less engaged. It's just harder to turn out young people and minorities. Speaking of young people turnout, one guy who is counting on them is Gary Johnson. He is a third-party candidate, a libertarian. He's been doing pretty well in some state polls approaching like 10%-ish. He got a big paper endorsement this week from the Detroit News. Uh, That was their first endorsement of a non-Republican ever in 143 years. But in spite of those good metrics for him, he also had a bad moment this week. During a town hall this week on MSNBC, he was asked by Chris Matthews to name a foreign leader that he admired. It did not go well. You got to do this anywhere, any continent. Canada, Mexico, Europe, over there, uh, Asia, South America, Africa, name a foreign leader that you respect. I guess I'm having an Aleppo moment in the former former president of Mexico. But I'm giving you the whole world. I know, I know. Anybody in the world you like, anybody, pick any leader. The former president of Mexico. Which one? I'm, I'm having a brain. I'm well, having a brain. Well, name anybody. Fox. Zadiox. Who's your favorite foreign leader? Oh, God. You know, these moments sound rough when you hear them, but he continues to keep doing well in some of these polls. It's like, does this hurt him? Because I think the all. question is how many people are voting for Gary Johnson or supporting Gary Johnson because they think Gary Johnson could be a great president of the United States. Could be States. a president. Yeah, I think. <laughs> 
it's probably not that big of a chunk of the Gary Johnson coalition. I think a lot of the younger voters, particularly who attracted to Gary Johnson, it seems like more of a thumbing their nose at their Democratic and Republican choices. It seems like I don't want to vote for either of these main parties. I'm going to go with somebody else as opposed to I really believe in what Gary Johnson is talking about. I mean, if he does well, if he continues to do okay in polls, who does he hurt more in November? Hillary Clinton. There's just no doubt about it. That's where young people are parking. Tremendous numbers of young people are parking there. That's why she's been out and Obama has been out trying to say a vote for Gary Johnson is a vote for Donald Trump. But I have a, I have a couple of really good friends who are libertarians and, and have had lots of thoughts about Gary Johnson for a long time, as opposed to I think a lot of people who have thoughts about Gary Johnson this year. And I think a lot of libertarians, or at least the ones I talk to, are deeply frustrated right now because they feel like this is a golden opportunity. They're never going to be in the conversation this much again. And they feel like Gary Johnson has not had a, here's what libertarianism is about. Here's what I want to do as president type focus message. Instead, it's been these incredibly embarrassing, uncomfortable moments like what you heard uh, with Chris Matthews and, and when he didn't know what Aleppo was a few weeks ago. It also, you know, when we spoke earlier about uh, surrogates and on the trail and this week when Michelle Obama was in Pennsylvania, she very much hit on this threat of Gary Johnson. I don't believe she called him out by name, but she said only one of two people is going to be president this November. And if your vote is not for Hillary Clinton, it is against her, meaning that if you're voting for Gary Johnson, she was equating it to a vote for Donald Trump because in some of these states, you know, I think there was polls in Pennsylvania where Gary Johnson is pulling in seven, eight, nine percent of the vote. And that could be a killer for her in some battleground states. And Mar is exactly right. Every indication is that vote is pulling away from Democrats, not from Republicans. All right. In other news this week, Congress voted to override a veto from the president for the first time of Obama's presidency. It was all over a bill concerning 9-11. Sue, explain it to us. It is a bill uh, informally called JASTA, which stands for Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. This is legislation that has existed for years. It's complicated, and it is often referred to as 9-11. What this bill would do in the short term is it creates a legal avenue where the families of victims of 9-11 could now sue in U.S. courts the government of Saudi Arabia. Uh, Because there's belief that... The Saudi Arabian government, it's proper, has never been implicated in anything involving 9-11. However, 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi Arabian, and there is also uh, long-held views that there were links to people in the Saudi Arabian intelligence Mm -hmm. apparatus. Mm -hmm. But they didn't have a legal avenue to sue. There are current laws where you can sue countries that are sponsors of terrorism, but there's only three. It's Iran, Syria, and Sudan. Hmm. So Saudi Arabia is not recognized by the United States as a state sponsor of terrorism. This now gives a legal avenue for these families to pursue these lawsuits. What is so interesting about this is that it was very strongly opposed by President Obama, by the Joint Chiefs, by the Defense Secretary, by many diplomats in the international community, because it's not just about 9-11 families in Saudi Arabia. What they will argue is it opens up liability on this concept of sovereign immunity, which is that you can't sue a government for something their people may have done. And that reason why the president was so against it is there is no country that has more international engagements than us. And that there is a concern that if you lower the threshold or chip away at this immunity, that it could in turn open up the U.S. to similar lawsuits. But, Sue, I mean, also a big part of this is that Saudi Arabia is our ally. 
right? Yeah. I mean, it, it is. This is part of the reason why President Obama was so against it is because Saudi Arabia is an ally of ours. Yeah. And Saudi Arabia has very forcefully opposed the legislation. But that said, Congress really didn't care. It was passed by voice vote in both chambers. The president vetoed it. It came back to, to the Hill this week. Ninety-seven senators voted to override the veto. The lone no vote was Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid, who said that he was compelled to change his mind after having conversations with the White House about it. The House also overrode the veto. Seventy-seven members of the House voted against it. The fascinating politics of this is you have many members acknowledging that the president has a point, that this huh. might not be great policy. And senators like Bob Corker of Tennessee have already said that they might need to come back and do some tweaks to this legislation to make sure it doesn't have these unintended consequences. But if you're a politician 40 some odd days from Election Day, do you want to be a no vote against 9-11 families? You can't. But you know, what's also interesting is Chuck Schumer put a clause in the bill that says if there is a lawsuit and it's in court, the State Department can go to the judge and certify that the U.S. government is negotiating with Saudi Arabia to get some kind of monetary damages for the plaintiff and the judge can stop the case. Why do you think this was such an overwhelming, we don't want to be on the wrong side of this type move? Because uh, it's been such a struggle to get various uh, aid packages to people who have health problems related to, to 9-11 That's cleanup. different. That's what, government that different? spending. This is going after Saudi mm. Arabia, who has fomented this radical ideology, Islamic ideology, Wahhabism, which many people feel is the underpinning for al-Qaeda and eventually ISIS. And there is no love lost in the Congress for Saudi Arabia. All right. One more break. We'll be right back with a few of your questions. And can't let it go. Hey, before we get back to our show, I want to let you know about another great show we think you'll like, NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's basically the NPR politics podcast if we only talked about pop culture. In fact, we modeled our show's format on theirs, which you'll hear if you check out the show. And also our own Sam Sanders was a guest on theirs in a recent episode about documentaries and mockumentaries. Check out Pop Culture Happy Hour at npr.org slash podcasts or on the NPR One app. All right, back to the show. All right, we're back. Time for questions. Reminder, we're going to answer a lot more of your questions, including your recorded questions, questions about the debate, and our Monday Mail episode. That one will be out Monday morning. First up is a recorded question from Andrea in Durham, North Carolina. I like Durham. It's a great town. Here's the thing I keep wondering about. Let's say Hillary wins. Trump won't concede gracefully, or maybe not at all, right? Even if she wins 49 states, won't he just say it was rigged and then immediately sue? We are talking about one of the most litigious human beings on earth, after all. And so I'm just wondering if there's a precedent here for sore losers in presidential politics. Just to point out first, Trump did say this week in the debate that he would accept the results of the election. Although, so there's that. he has also said in the past that the only way he can lose is if it's stolen from him. This is one of the scariest conspiracy theories out there because it has such dangerous implications. What will he do? There are clearly laws in states about runoffs if the finish is so close. But what will he tell his supporters? Should they accept the results of the election? Or is Hillary Clinton an illegitimate president? We don't know what he'll do. So in the question, uh, she also asked or thought that Trump might sue. Who do you sue if you're going to sue about the election? There are 50 states that run their own elections. 
Who do yeah. you sue? I think you, uh, well, in 2000, it was state Supreme Court case and then eventually went up to the United States Supreme Court. I think he would start in the state courts in question that, that you were challenging. We should point out that he did concede gracefully when he lost Iowa to Ted Cruz. Yeah. And I think that surprised a lot of people. But of course, I think he knew that he was on his way to a huge win in New Hampshire after that. It also depends on what the margin is. If the yeah. winner of the if the outcome on election day is decisive, if someone's winning with 350 electoral votes, then there's no grounds. I think the question that she raises and I think is a question we all have is if this comes down to another Florida situation, if this is if one state is what it hinges on. And if that is the case, it's not just what is Trump going to do? It's what's Clinton going to do. If this comes down to a narrow outcome in one state, both campaigns are going mm-hmm. to lawyer up on that. Uh, but it all depends on the margin. And as Scott said, it you need standing to sue. So you would have to have some reason to believe that you were wronged and it would have to be in a state Gotcha. Where it was, there was a law that you could contest. The other hard part for the outcome of this election is if the polls hold, it's very likely that who wins the presidency will win with less than 50 percent of the vote. Yeah. And it's a guarantee that whoever wins the presidency will come into the White House with the highest disapproval ratings of any new president in U.S. history. So that does create a mix for hijinks if someone wanted to pursue it. Mm. I just hope it ends on election Oh, does, don't we all, <laughs> Sam? Don't we all? Um, next question comes to us from Rohan. Hi, Rohan. He writes, quote, I am a graduate student and I have volunteered for the Chris Christie for president campaign in New Hampshire. Worked for the Kelly Ayak campaign over the summer. He continues, since I don't think I should be ashamed of my past involvement, I've been open about my politics and my previous work. However, he says... This has led to people sneering at me, looking at me negatively, and jeering as well. A professor who was my mentor in undergraduate school told me to never contact him again because of a spat we had over Paul Ryan's poverty plan. Wow. I have friends across the political spectrum, but in this election, it seems emotions are so high that if you are not a member of the political tribe, you are the other, the outsider. This is amplified by the fact that I am of mixed race and already feel like the other among my predominantly white classmates. Is there a way for us to build and sustain social connections across the political divide, or has political polarization made this a near impossibility? Sincerely, Rohan, he says, P.S., all of you are awesome and keep up the great work all of you do. Thanks, man. I have thoughts on this, but who wants to go first? That is so tragic yeah. and upsetting, but we know that it's 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 accurate because we know that more and more American voters live in separate political universes and people live near people who think like them and agree with them and they listen to media that agrees with them. And um, it's just so polarized. I think this is really sad and awful. just want to point out that I think that professor is a terrible mentor. You need to get yourself a better mentor. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, like what's become kind of my cause for this election is to try to figure out and convince people to have some more empathetic conversations about politics. So much of what I hear on the trail and so much of what I hear from candidates and surrogates is a type of argument and a type of the words that they use basically make the case, subtly or not so subtly, that if you, if you don't agree with them, you're not just wrong. You're approaching something near evil. Or right? you're stupid. Or you're stupid, right? And I think that we have heard this and seen this all throughout this campaign year. And what I want people to understand is that, like, you can vote the other way and still be a good person. And I think that from the top down, 
we need to encourage a type of political dialogue that is not finger pointing and not blaming, but just saying, here's where we agree and here's where we disagree. Even with, you know, Clinton's comments about deplorables, that kind of talk where the folks that don't support you are otherized, even if you think it's right, it's not helpful. And I've been saying this for months. How can we have better conversations? This is a sign that we're having some really nasty conversations. And I think even though we've gone in the opposite direction, it seems more and more each election cycle, and this one is just a whole new level of nastiness, I think there is some sort of desire for that. And maybe that's why over the weekend, when Michelle Obama hugged George W. Bush and he kind of like nuzzled up against her, looking like he was in a very happy place, I think that's a reason why that picture rocketed around social media. Because I think a lot of people were like, oh, wow, they seem to like each other. That's really nice. Yeah. Uh, This is also an issue that I am like personally fascinated by and have thought a lot about in elections. And I think what's so interesting about it is we tend to want to blame our politicians and our politics for our polarization. But I think there's also a reverse happening. They reflect us. In that people – there's two good books that I think are often referred to, but if he's interested in this. The first one is called Bowling Alone, which was a hit and it came out end of the Clinton era. And another one more recently is called The Big Sort. And – It is about how Americans, by nature, we are less connected to our communities where people don't go to church as often. You're not connected to the sort of PTA groups and all the things that bind communities together. And where you might meet someone who thinks differently from you. Yes, and tolerate that, your neighbor. And that the big sort is that, one, you know, we are more upwardly mobile. We have more options, but we tend to choose to live in more like-minded clusters. You have the mobility to move to cities or move to the country and that we have self-selected communities that reflect our own views. So you are less open and interested in hearing something different. But, you know, I th- I do agree that, you know, we've met the enemy and they are us. And it's, it's not just a problem of Congress being polarized. It's voters, too. But, but some of this can be overcome with political will and leadership. And it is a choice on the part of our elected leaders to work together to get something done. Because just as polarized as our electorate is, people say over and over again in polls, they want Congress to work across the aisles. They want them to work together to solve problems. There are a shelf full of bipartisan solutions to things like infrastructure and tax reform, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that, yes, some of this is structural and it's baked into the cake and it's the way we live now. But some of it can be overcome with political will and leadership. I don't know. I feel like everybody has to be willing to do that for it to work, though, because I think like, you know, politician A tries to reach across the aisle. It doesn't work out. Like, I feel like it's just like if one person wants to have an argument, you're going to end up having an argument because you can't just like not engage well, with that person. Uh, yes. You but, know? but there are too many people who are afraid of being primaried. And, you know, we this is a subject for a whole other podcast. Yeah. I mean, there are some solutions to this, the top two primary system in California. I mean, there, there are ways that you can n- not penalize someone from crossing the aisle. Mm-hmm. I will say, Rohan, Keep your head up, man. We want to make this space a safe space for you to come and talk about politics with us. We appreciate your letter, and I'm rooting for you, dude. And contact us anytime you want. Yeah. Again, more listener mail coming your way on Monday. It'll be debate-focused. Be sure to send your questions to nprpolitics at npr.org. We do read everything that comes in, even if we cannot answer your question on the show. Also, just hearing what you all are curious about helps us know what we should talk about. So keep it coming. And now it's time for a regular final segment, Can't Let It Go, when we all share one thing we just cannot stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. I'm going to exert some privilege here and go first. All right. That's okay. Um, This is a voicemail that we actually got from a listener that made my week. 
It just made me really happy, and let's just play it. Hi, NPR Politics Podcast. This is Anne calling you from Montgomery, Alabama. I just got to say how much I love the way Sam starts the show every week and says, hey, y'all, because I know, being a Southerner, that his hey, y'all means something very different from the more the typical way you hear it said, which is, hey, (laughs) y'all. Those two things mean something very different. His hey, y'all means we got things to talk about. Let's get down to business. Let's talk. Hey, y'all means what's going on? What's up? Much more of a greeting. It makes me smile every time I hear him say it because I know what he means, but maybe not everybody else knows what he means. So that means I'm on the inside just a little bit. Love the podcast. Love all of y'all. Keep it going. Thanks a lot. Sam, is this on point? This is pretty much on point. Also, That's great. And we love you too. That really made me smile. I don't think there's any better judge of the what you mean when you say y'all than a woman from Alabama. There you go. Yes. Yes. So thanks, Anne. I love our listeners. Who's next? So I want to talk about something that happened Monday night, but it wasn't the presidential debate. And it was Uh kind of a beautiful, emotional moment that happened in baseball. So over the weekend, Miami Marlins pitcher Jose Fernandez died in a boating accident. Very tragic. Very tragic. He was a charismatic player. He was a great player. He was somebody who you could argue, I mean, it's hard to tell early in someone's career, but this is someone who could have been a Hall of Famer. He had everything. Yeah. And he was like a centerpiece of the team, and it was just a devastating loss. The Marlins canceled their game Sunday. And then Monday, the Marlins played their first game since learning of his death. They played the New York Mets. There was a beautiful ceremony on the field before the game began where the Marlins basically stood around the pitcher's mound, and the Mets came out, and they were all hugging. And you could tell, like, everybody there was totally shaken by this. Yeah. So the first batter of the game for the Marlins is D. Gordon. He's a leadoff hitter, doesn't hit for power, hasn't hit a home run all year. He's a lefty, but he goes into the batter's box at first, standing as a right-handed batter as kind of a tribute to Fernandez. Then he switches around to his normal batting stance, and a couple pitches later, this happens. Gordon to right. It's deep. And it's gone! So he hits a home run, and he's running the bases, and you could tell that the emotion is overcoming. He starts to cry running the bases gets to the plate and just bear hugs every single one of his teammates. Wow. And and he was so wrapped up in emotion that he actually had to go into the locker room to oh, compose man. himself. But it was just it was just a really beautiful moment. And you could see the feeling watching through on TV and you could just see how all the players reacted. And I don't know, it just really stuck with me all week. Yeah. Okay, now for the bummer part of the <laughs> <laughs> um, what I really loved were some of the reactions to the so-called fat shaming of Miss Universe by Donald Trump and Anna Navarro, who's a Republican Latina commentator on CNN and others, had two tweets that I really have been thinking about. The first one is, hell hath no fury than a Latina called fat. (laughs) And and the other one in response to stories that Alicia Machado had once been involved in perhaps threatening a judge in Venezuela. She said, please, what Hispanic woman worth her salt has never threatened threatened a man with death or mutilation. (laughs) (laughs) So that's my shout out to Anna. Anna, Anna, Anna. She's Latina, right? Yes. Okay. She's from Nicaragua. Okay. It could have been a white person to not have tweeted that. (laughs) Right. That is an in the community joke. That's very funny because it's in the community. Yes. Okay. Uh, Sue, what can you not let go? So I can't let go. I'm going to bring it back to earlier in the week to the debate. And Mm -hmm. there was a moment at the debate when Donald Trump brought up an old feud 
somebody who's been very vicious to me, Rosie O'Donnell. I said very tough things to her, and I think everybody would agree that she deserves it, and nobody feels sorry for her. But you, <laughs> she deserves it, and nobody feels sorry for her. Why are we still talking about Rosie O'Donnell? Hearing that come out of the mouth of someone who could be president of the United States was sort of amazing. It was weird. Like, it was this very mean girl, seventh grade. Like, I could hear my 14-year-old me <laughs> saying, and nobody likes you anyway. Um, and the fact that the Donald Trump-Rosie O'Donnell feud is still, like, red hot. What is the root of the feud? Ten years in. What's the root of the feud? I feel like a Rosie O'Donnell Feud just is like a phrase that sounds like this is something that should be in 1999. Yeah, like, yes. what are we talking about? I mean, about? the 90s keep coming back in this because election over and over. Speaking of can't let go, Donald Trump can't let go of yes. anything. Yes. Yes. anything. Yes. He's very good at not letting go. Uh, it started when Rosie O'Donnell was still a co-host of The View. Which a, I love. I love sh- that show. One of the shows, she did this segment where she really belittled Donald Trump and she made fun of his hair. She questioned his wealth. Oh, I remember A, this. a lot of the criticisms this. that have carried she went on. went off on him. Um, and it sparked a feud that went back and forth in the media for years. And clearly the embers still burn bright on this uh, celebrity feud. And just the fact that we are still talking about Donald Trump and Rosie O'Donnell fighting it out, I can't let it go. Yeah, me neither. And nobody feels bad for you anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's it for this week. Again, we'll have the latest Listener Mail episode for you on Monday. We'll answer some of your questions about that night's debate. Speaking of the debate, we will have a lot of debate coverage for you all next week. On top of the Monday Mail episode, we'll have an episode previewing the debate before that VP debate on Tuesday. We'll also have another episode to talk about what happened once the debate is done. So check us out next week. We'll keep you covered. You can, of course, keep up with our coverage until then at nprpolitics.org. Also on the NPR One app, which is awesome, and on your local public radio station, which is also awesome. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. And I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. All right. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Mm-hmm.